I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. Television shows that explore the black American experience have been around for many, many decades in this country, but for a really long time, they were mostly written and constructed by white screenwriters and intended for mostly white audiences. In the 90s and in more recent years, that has changed a bit. Now, shows with an all or mostly black class cast are often constructed by black writers and producers, and they're aired on streaming platforms like Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. This has produced really amazing shows like Atlanta and Insecure, which are two of my favorites. But there's still a deep question as to whether more inclusive changes in the television industry for black and non-white writers and producers will remain, or whether black writers and producers will be sidelined to writing singular, uncomplicated characters. This is a story and a narrative that has unfolded over a really long time, not just in Hollywood, but in many places in the arts. There's a real question about whether you can be unequivocally, unapologetically black in Hollywood or in many other art spaces and still enjoy the kind of opportunity and access that would get your work the kind of recognition and exposure it is supposed to have. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today and Atlanta Atlantic writer Hannah Georges recently wrote a piece exploring these tensions in the article titled Not Enough Has Changed Since Sanford and Son. Hannah Georges joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about the history of black TV shows through the 60s and 70s. What were they trying to do and who was the main audience? And talk about Sanford and Son in particular and the role that that show played. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think a lot about a quote from Hal Cantor, who is the creator of Julia, the sitcom that premiered in 1968 and followed, you know, the, the titular character played by Diane Carroll, who was a nurse, um, a widow, a, a war widow, who was just raising her son and kind of figuring her way through, through life, but a very middle class character. Um, and Hal Cantor, who, who's a creator of the show and who's white, said he wanted entertainment, not agony. And there's something really interesting about that framing that I, I thought a lot about as I was working on this. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, year, year, a few years later that we got Sanford and Son um, from, from Norman Lear, who, you know, by then had done All in the Family, who had sort of established um, a reputation, a credibility as a person who creates shows, and in particular sitcoms, in particular um, these shows that bring people together and sort of make them laugh, even if uncomfortably, um, but, but sitcoms that really explore social issues. So it wasn't, um, it was both remarkable and also, um, you know, it felt right that Norman Lear was, was the one who brought us Archie Bunker and also, uh, you know, the, the Sanfords, mm-hmm. <laughs> who were sort of persnickety, uh, crotchety in their own ways, but were, of course, um, you know, black men living, uh, sort of working together, uh, father and son, running this, like, junkyard business. Um, but this very, again, like, working class, sort of salt of the earth uh, vibe, which felt true to, to, true to some of the other stuff that Norman Lear had done. Hmm. And what's the, the problem? I think we should talk a little with <laughs> the way in which that happened. I mean, I, I think there are kind of separate tracks to, 
to analyze TV from that time. One is the content itself, what those shows were saying about the black American experience. But there's another track of analysis that looks at who was in control of that depiction and that narrative. Uh, can, can you kind of separate those two and, and, and talk about them separate in, in, in each instance? Sure, sure. I mean, the, the tough thing is that they're incredibly connected, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, who it is who's in a writer's room or in sort of the, the halls of power directly affects what we see on screen, right? Um, and so, you know, there, for with Sanford and Son, for example, there were, you know, <laughs> Fred Sanford was, a, again, like a sort of cantankerous man um, and, you know, was similar to Archie Bunker in that he frequently deployed all sorts of slurs and sort of referred, um, you know, has a sort of very crass way of speaking that sometimes feels, in retrospect, watching the series now at least, as though there are some equivalences being made between, you know, his potential prejudice towards, say, white people um, and, like, systemic racism. And we know that those things are not <laughs> structurally the same thing, but that's, that's some of the stuff that you get when um, when a, a writer's room doesn't necessarily look like the cast that it's trying to represent. Um, and there's there's all sorts of, like, imperfect comparisons there in part because we're talking about, you know, the early 70s, right? Um, and just the general sort of national dialogue around race wasn't was wasn't as um, nuanced as, as it might be now, for example. Um, but that, that show and, and many others for quite, quite some time had very, very little creative input and creative direction from black people, black writers, black producers. Um, there were certainly ways that um, Red Fox, the the comic who played Fred Sanford, you know, sort of inflected his own style, his own comedic voice mm-hmm. into it, into the character. Um, and that was a big part of it. But that's, that's, you know, sort of functionally different than being in a writer's room and being there sort of crafting narrative beats. Um, and that, that's, again, the, the sort of attention that's a related thing, but that shows up pretty consistently throughout mm-hmm. this, this history. And it doesn't just happen in the 1970s and oh, no. 80s. It, it, it casts forward. And in fact, you give an of example course. in your piece of the predominantly black show Family Matters, which yeah. is a 90s show uh, right. where the family's son, Eddie, is upset about a run-in he has with the police. But his father, Carl, is, of course, a black police officer, and he actually defends the police, at least right. at first. So I, I'm really wondering if you can talk about what was happening in the writer's room at the time of yeah. that scene's creation and how that was a representation of white TV writers trying to handle black television. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I remember watching, excuse me, watching Family Matters growing up and sort of all of this stuff, all of those tensions completely evaded me. And so to go back and be watching this, um, you know, working on this story and speaking with Felicia D. Henderson, who is the writer who was in the room at the time, um, whose experience I sort of recount um, and relay in the, in the early part of the story was just fascinating and it was an incredible learning experience for me not just as you know not just as a reporter as a critic as a writer but also as a person who grew up on a lot of these shows and really loved them Mm. um but the the thing that she said when we talked about um this episode which was called good cop bad cop um it was a 1984 episode is that you know Eddie comes home, he's visibly upset, he's saying, like, I was essentially thrown to the ground, um, and he recounts an experience that 
for many black people in the country is unfortunately extremely familiar. It's one that either you have maybe had yourself or you, a friend has a brother, a cousin, you know, something. Um, but it's not sort of out of, it's certainly not a, like a fantastical experience that he describes. Right. But Carl really struggles with the idea that that could be possible. Right. He says that's unusual procedure unless you provoked it. Um, and that, that was a phrase or that line, um, sort of provoked a lot of tension in, in the writer's room as Felicia explained it, you know, she said that she, the line felt wrong to her and she was a junior writer at the time, but she spoke up and said, you know, well, no father would tell his black son that no black father would tell his black son that. Um, and as she remembers it, the room got silent and she said, you could hear a pin drop. Um, and the white showrunner defended the line and the others in the room essentially responded to Felicia, as though she had called them racist and sort of, you know, attacked their moral character instead of suggesting an alternate direction for this line of dialogue that was mm. sort of more steeped in her experience and more steeped in the experiences of the people she knows. Mm. Um, and I think that, that that's an interesting tension, right? Like writers rooms and in general, creative collaborative spaces um, can be thorny because of course people are sensitive about their work. People are sensitive about their art. I certainly, I certainly <laughs> could be about my own writing. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think that there's something in that, um, in that inclination to take somebody saying, Hey, this doesn't quite sound right to me as, as a person who has an experience like this or who knows this really well to take that as a more personal attack rather than, you know, that person speaking from a place of authority and experience about what the, what shape the story could take uh, is really interesting. Yeah. I'm talking with Hannah Georges, a staff writer at the Atlantic where she covers culture. She has a new piece in the Atlantic's inheritance project titled not enough has changed since Samford and son. We're talking about television, the depiction of the black American experience on television in particular, where it started in our country and how it has developed over time. We're in a really different place today with so-called black television than we were in the 1960s or the 1970s. The question is whether we are in a sufficiently uh, different space than then. Are we in a space where black screenwriters and producers have the agency they should to be able to tell black American stories on a medium like television? Or are we still in a place where they are limited by discrimination uh, and bias? We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Colin, tell us what kind of television shows uh, you enjoy? How many of them include a predominantly black cast? What is it about these shows, if you're watching them, that you enjoy? And how much do you think about who's creating the shows that we see on television that depict African Americans? Uh, do you care whether it's white writers who are creating that art or whether African Americans get to do that? Uh, in large number. Do you think it matters in terms of the content of these shows, who's writing and who's producing? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, so, Hannah, I want to 
sort of pull the lens forward again to more modern television and uh, talk about some of the some of the things that we see now, some of the data points that we have to suggest that things are at least somewhat different. So Shonda Rhimes, for instance, has become a really important person in television. Grey's Anatomy is one of the longest running shows ever. Uh, and she seems to have created a cast and writer's room that is indeed uh, multiracial. Uh, in your reporting, what have you found that she's done that's so groundbreaking and why does it matter so much? Yeah, you know, I, I love the way that Shonda historic, you know, for a long time now has spoken about her um, cast and the way, the kinds of people whose stories she she's, uh, values telling. And she sort of bristles at... Um, bristles at the word diversity in particular and often talks more about just depicting the world as she sees it um, in a way that, that reminds us that, you know, like there's something, despite what television has looked like um, sort of throughout its history and what a lot of our entertainment in this country has looked like throughout its history, there's something um, almost, there should be something unremarkable about turning on your TV and seeing a wealth of television shows that feel and look like the country as it is. Um, and I think that there's something really like poetic <laughs> about the way that she she relays that because it sort of um, it it peels back some of the jargon that sometimes a lot of us who work in this space or think a lot about this stuff can use when it comes to when it comes to describing art that is really just about you know making telling stories that resonate with people, telling stories that challenge them, telling stories that are fun and sometimes difficult um, and that doing that in a way that includes people's experiences, again, from around the country should be just what we're striving for in general. Um, and I just, I really love the sort of nonplussed way that she sometimes <laughs> talks about it, but especially, you know, you know, juxtaposed with the fact that, again, she is this sort of hugely important figure in the television industry, right? The idea that there's this, the Shonda effect, meaning the sense that she you know, started putting out Grey's Anatomy scandal, how to get away with murder, these casts led by, or these shows led by really multiracial, multi-ethnic casts. Um, in the case of Scandal, the first um, primetime series, I believe, led by a black woman character since Julia, mm. which, like I said, premiered in 1968. Mm -hmm. Scandal, you know, um, what, four decades later, right? Um, so it, I think the the juxtaposition between how, how big of a deal it has been um, in the industry for those works to be not just successful, but hugely successful, right? Um, and the way that she talks about this mandate as being just how she sees the world um, has always been really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Let's start with uh, Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. What I wanted to say in terms of black representation is in commercials that when you see black people dancing into a McDonald's or <laughs> buying furniture or waiting and twirling around the room, that's not all of us on our trip. The other thing I'd like to say is that um, I vote for Mike Coulter, who was Luke Cage yeah. and Bishop uh -huh. as the next James Bond. 
Huh. Oh. Bernadette, that's a really interesting idea. Bernadette, as always, thanks for the call. You've always got such uh, provocative things to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, quickly before we have to break, uh, Hannah, uh, respond to what Bernadette's saying, especially about commercials. And, and I think yes. that's a different yes. world, really, than than the you know the, the television shows that they get produced but but right. there's there's a representation question and issue on those too yeah yeah absolutely. i mean to be clear i do 100 percent co-sign the mike coulter for james bond idea <laughs> but <laughs> to keep it focused here um you know i i think that the commercials are interesting space because you know they sort of more you, there's, there's a very explicit sort of um like economic focus, obviously, by, by what it is that they are in a way that, that does overlap with what we're seeing on TV, especially in earlier years, because so much of programming decisions, especially on broadcast networks, um, were guided by who advertisers wanted to target, right? And so I, I think that there's been some really interesting writing about, about ads that really heavily focus um, or, or that really heavily target black audiences, black demographics, and the ways that some of them include, especially those McDonald's ads, the like really soulful, I'm loving it ads of like, you know, like what, 15 years ago or mm-hmm. so. Um, those, those, did dovetail with a time when we saw more black shows on TV. Um, but it's, it's interesting that there have been times where there are still lots of commercials targeting black demographics on TV, and there's not that same wealth of shows sort of, you know, telling black stories, right? Like it, the, with the message sort of being, we want your money, certainly, but we're not necessarily going to put your experiences on screen uh, in a way that's just about the story and not just about sort of get, sending you a product that you should be buying. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Hannah Georges of The Atlantic uh, about black television, how it has evolved, how it is still evolving. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDT, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined. My guest is Hannah Georges. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers culture. She has a piece in The Atlantic's Inheritance Project titled, Not Enough Has Changed Since Sanford and Son. We are talking about black television and the way it has changed over many decades. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. What do you think of shows that try to depict the African-American experience on television. How do you think those shows have changed over time? Uh, are you comfortable with the, where we are right now with black television? Far more people of color being able to shape those shows and write those shows. Uh, but is it enough? Have we gone far enough uh, in including more people uh, of color in that process? As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the f- Number here on the phones, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter 
and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get back to listeners, Hannah, I want to talk about streaming and streaming mm-hmm. services and the difference that they seem to have made in terms of getting black writers and actors opportunities that they didn't have before. Why is that working uh, that way? And does it seem like a sign of the future in terms of things to come? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly not a perfect solution. There, there are ways that streaming platforms are themselves also subject to considerations around numbers, around viewership. It's sort of not... Um, uh, utopia just because it's not the traditional advertising model, but I think a lot about something that Darnell Hunt, who's a professor and a dean at UCLA, um, and he, he, he's a lead author on their, their annual Hollywood diversity report. Um, but when I was speaking with him, he said essentially that, you know, when he buys a Hulu subscription or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever streaming platform it is, you get everything in their catalog. And so there is an incentive for those platforms to produce you know, an array of shows, films, et cetera, that are, that are appealing to lots of different audiences. And so the question isn't necessarily how do you get tons of people to tune into one sitcom, but rather how do you produce enough that there's so much that, you know, a, a, a sort of critical mass of people has at least one favorite show on your platform. And that that's just different and staggered enough from the sort of, you know, mass appeal mandate of, of broadcast, especially in its earlier years, that we have seen little pockets of creativity that, that, that are different than what would have been possible 20 years ago, mm-hmm. what would have been possible 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even because of streaming. Yeah. yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, great uh, topic. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all times was In Living Color. I'm just wondering how your guest rates that. And that was pretty much all black cast, a few white people, but it was all black writers. And I don't think you could put that on the air nowadays. They kind of went over the top, but it was very entertaining. (laughs) That's a great great point, Harry. I wonder how that would be received uh, on network television these days. But but talk about, Hannah, the, the... the importance of that show. And again, it's kind of a milestone and it, I, I think yeah. it opens the doors for a lot of things that we see after it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it, it does in, in ways that are um, sort of uh, symbolic or ways that are kind of broader and cultural and in terms of like shaping the landscape. And it also does in quite literal ways, right? Like there are people who wrote on that show who went on to write for some of the biggest sitcoms, the nineties who, who are still working today. And so there's, there's a real interesting pipeline um, of folks who came through that show. And, and that's, that's one thing that kept showing up in my reporting is that there were these landmark shows that, were, you know, had a huge impact, not just on viewers and had a huge impact, not just on what people thought was possible in the television space, but that also in who they staffed and who they gave the room to have, you know, to grow creatively went on to influence other shows moving forward. Um, yeah, I would, I, I mean, I would love to write a story that's just about in living color. There's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's such, it's such a rich text. And I think, um, I, uh, Part of the reason that I didn't really, really get into it in this is that I know I would have wanted to spend like seven <laughs> paragraphs on it, and I decided to perhaps spare my editor that. <laughs> well, and, <But. laughs> and there's something about the risk that they're taking with the content there that I think yeah. you can find uh, traces of in in content today. I mean, when I think of shows like Insecure or Atlanta, which are two, as I said in the open, two of my favorites, they're, they're, these are shows that do take a lot of risk with Right. content and, and approach. And I 
think it's it, it really is in living color that that kicks that door open for for absolutely. for black television in particular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's a there's a sort of absurdist bent to some elements of Atlanta and, and even Insecure. Right, mm-hmm. Insecure had that show within the show. I think is called Due North. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, the, there are things that you can you can almost trace that sort of creative lineage, lineage back to in Living Color, even if it's not obviously a direct line. That there's something in there about what is possible and what humor can be and what humor has to do, what it doesn't have to do. Um, that is really, that feels really rooted in that. And, and some of the stuff that we saw beginning with, um, in living color, which is from Keenan Ivory Waynes and, and Damon Waynes. Yeah. Okay. Hannah Georges, uh, staff writer at the Atlantic. It was really great to have you here, uh, for this conversation. Uh, quickly, uh, I've got about a minute left. I want to, I want to talk about what, the future holds in in terms of what you see. Are we going to see uh, the 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 doors that are open for black writers and producers maintained uh, over time, or is there a risk that we could uh, step back, have sort of uh, uh, drawbacks that that we we might not have anticipated? Yeah, you know, I think that there's always that risk, mm-hmm. um, but I, I am I am cautiously optimistic um, as a reporter, as a critic, um, but also as, also as a viewer. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this moment is people are, people within the industry, people who have, who are getting um, opportunities to do big things themselves are often reaching out to others and kind of bringing them in. I think that some of the most important work that like Issa Rae, Lena Waif, et cetera, are doing isn't just about the shows that they put on, which are, you know, which are great and which a lot of people like, but about bringing in, you know, less seasoned creators to give them opportunities to try things themselves. Um, and that sort of brings us um a broadening of, of the landscape in a way that feels like it could be more sustainable than relying on maybe like three, four or five individual people to give us like the bulk of black TV at all mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with the new president of Sojourners, Reverend Adam Taylor, who has a new book titled a more perfect union a new vision for building the beloved community. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.